This is TDPS. Eric. Yes, Christopher? Are you sick of doing promos for my new books yet? That depends. Are we at the beach? Yes, we're at Sapphire Cove, the fictional Southern California resort featured in my new gay romance series coming in 2022. This is alarming. When did we go outside? You were transported by the powerful prose of C. Travis Rice. That's my new pen name devoted to steamy and emotional tales of romance between men. Yeah, no, that's not it. I was about to eat a sandwich in the studio, and now I'm being harassed by seagulls. Brandon, get rid of the seagulls, please. Oh, that's much better. Now I have to pee. First, pre-order your copy of Sapphire Sunset, the first installment in the Sapphire Cove series, which goes on sale March 1st, 2022, from Blue Box Press, when a new member of the resort security department falls hard for the nephew of the wealthy family that owns the place, sparks fly, and sexy scandal ensues at Sapphire Cove. Uh, Yeah, could you pre-order that for me? I'm going to run to the little podcaster's room. Brandon! Come get this seagull! I can't help it if my writing sets the scene. I know what I'm going to set if someone doesn't come get this seagull. Where'd you get that sandwich? Sapphire Sunset, the first book in the Sapphire Cove series from C. Travis Rice. Now available for pre-order. Eric. Yes, Christopher? Have you been to my website lately? Why would I go to your website? You're sitting right here. Well, it's the place to find out all about my new books. Why would I go to your website for that? Again, you're sitting right here. All right. Well, for people who aren't right here, ChristopherRiceBooks.com is a great place to get information about my new releases. Which you'll give me copies of because I'm sitting right here. Yeah, maybe. But for those who aren't currently sitting in our studio on the Sunset Strip, check out my website, sign up for my mailing list, and check out all the posts on my blog where I talk smack about Eric Shaw Quinn. What smack? Shut up and read this new book I wrote. Fuck that and fuck ChristopherRiceBooks.com. This ad did not go as planned. This was an ad? Hi, I'm Christopher Rice. And I'm Eric Shaw Quinn. And you're listening to TDPS Presents Christopher and Eric. On behalf of everyone here at TDPS, we'd like to wish you a happy new year. And take you back in time to one of the most significant years in the career of my late mother, Anne Rice. In 2014, our beloved premier party person announced the return of one of her most popular characters of all time, if not one of the most popular characters of all time. In her novel, Prince Lestat, the vampire Lestat, returned, and the result was an instant bestseller and a whirlwind of a book tour that took my mother all over North America. And Eric and I went along for part of it. It was in beautiful Burbank, California, that the three of us convened on stage in front of a live audience for one of Anne's most hilarious and no-holes-barred interviews yet. So in the final installment of our holiday tribute series to our dearly departed friend... And mother... Travel with us to a rowdy, crowded convention hall where everything was on the table. I went to a marvelous party... Damn, I'm Christopher Wright. Now I'm really Christopher Rice. And I'm really Eric Shaw Quinn. And welcome to the first excellent. ever dinner party show live on location with the greatest audience ever. Thank, Thank you for her. being here tonight Thanks at BenCon. So <laughs> I can't believe we did it. 
Oh, my God. Well, we haven't done it yet. We've got right? an hour to fill. Yeah, let's not call down the gods of fate on this one yet. In fact, I think some of them are actually sitting the out gods in the of audience. fate are yeah. here. The gods of fate. I think won somebody the came dressed contest. as the gods of fate here in the in the crowd tonight. It's quite a crowd here. It is. You'll want to look on the website and see the pictures. It's quite Jason a beautiful crowd, and we are taking video as we always do at the dinner party show, which we will post in I don't know a few months from now, because oh Eric and I do do most of the things on the dinner party show with help from our wonderful staff. We're joined tonight by Jason Mark, our videographer. Round of applause, please. Jason. Over at the control table, not making eye contact with anyone because they're handling our show, is Brandon Griffith and Brett Chernin. And our two handsome applause meisters, Jack Mikesell and Randy, forgotten Miles. Randy's last name, Miles. Thank you. They are our, they are our vice presidents um, in charge of, of, of guest relations. Guest relations. And tonight we have a lot of guests at our dinner party. Right. Um, we do have some very special party people here tonight, as we call them. We have reserved right. seats for them in the front row. Dottie. Philip, Samika, who is looking away because she's nervous and knows I'm about to embarrass her. Her mother, Carolyn. Her brother, whose name I have rudely forgotten. Scott! And Talitha Wagner have all traveled to be here. They listen to our show live every week. Thank you. A big round of applause for them as well. And we hope all of you listen to the show live every week. But if not, you know, there's still a chance because it'll be on again next week and, you know, like after that. And we do have a podcast, which right? people can you listen to. You can always to. download. You can catch up on, when you find out how fabulous we are, you can catch up on all our Here's back episodes. Here's hoping. Here's hoping. Right? I've said all I need to say for tonight. My opening act was it. You're so done. it's your show. You're, it's your show from here on out. You're do you done? have anything You're you want to share? Up no, I'm not giving up, but I'm very excited. I will say. We're very tired. Uh, Mom and I have been on a cross-country book tour. That's always a great way to begin a show. Right. We're really tired, but we'll try we'll our best. Try to keep it down. We're going we're gonna to catch up on our sleep up here. Well, you know, th so Mom and I have done a lot of events together at different bookstores and different event spaces and whatnot. And, and you know, they, usually I consider them a success if I don't get the hand. And this is, this is my mother's hand that she does when I've said something that she thinks is inappropriate. Watch tonight. Yeah, watch. We're going to watch for the we'll hand. We'll see if I we call get the hand tonight. The Anne Rice Cobra. So I'm demonstrating for our audience at home. We'll have the video. Um, so we were in New York, and we were talking about, as we always talk about when we talk about her career, the fact that there were a lot of writing teachers and whatnot who basically said, Miss Rice, you're never going to amount to anything. You know, you're just a mess. <laughs> you're just you disorganized. That. Your sentences are loose and all over the place. And I said, isn't this the story of every accomplished person, that there were all these douchebag there went the hand at the word douchebag. Douchebag teachers who, for some reason, right? tried to step on their dreams douche when they were young. Really? That was, that's a pretty low threshold for hand. So tonight, my money is on you getting the hand and not me. I think you know. Well, God knows if somebody's going to say something offensive, it's going to be me. <laughs> that's why we keep you around. Right? I thought that was why I was on the show to begin with. Vice yeah. president in charge of offensive. Right, exactly. Um, so, you know, that we have a lot to talk to her about, but we have also, um, did we pass, you, you did the fishbowl. Talk to us about how the fishbowl is working tonight. Well, there's, there are questions in the fishbowl now, so it appears to be working. If you didn't hear earlier, um, we passed out, our vice presidents in charge of guest relations passed out question cards. So if you haven't filled out one, it's still not too late. Don't be shy. Hold up your hand, and they'll bring you a card and a pencil. And then we'll put them in the bowl. And then, because we're limited for time, we will answer those questions that we have the time to draw out of the bowl and write your name on the back of your question card. Because at the end of the show, we're going to have a drawing for um, the, gift, the gift, gift 
guest gift swag. My God, that's easy for me to say, right? The guest gift swag uh, takeout boxes, um, which include homemade cookies and Lent chocolate truffles, in case you hate my cookies. Because nobody hates Lent chocolate Nobody truffles. hates it. We're trying to sell those cookies. I don't know if we sold those. And that those. was my phone. I forgot to turn my you phone off. You forgot to turn off your phone on your own radio show? I'm the worst. I swear to God. Unbelievable. I, I should be watched. You really, well, I'm watching you right now. So yeah. that's the fishbowl. What else do we have to talk about as we kill time before Anne Rice comes out? Kill time. <laughs> no, I'm sorry, Eric. But we will also be out in the. We will be outside after the show. Right. Um, signing. Um, after we've done the drawing, um, we will be signing. Uh, you'll be signing your new book, yes, The Vines, and we'll be signing her book and anything else that people have brought to sign. But if you want to, you know, say hi on a more personal basis, we'll be out there for, I think, an hour. Yeah, I think we're going to be out there for as long as they let us stay out there. But we, we like to make sure everybody gets seen. And she is very big about making sure everybody gets seen and signed. We'll also have dinner party show bookmarks and uh, condoms and IUDs to hand out because it's all about marketing. But we will not... Birth control gets the biggest laugh of the night. But you have to put them on yourself. Yeah. We, we tried doing it the other way, but it just really, the line gets backed up. And, yeah. yeah and really, Jack and Randy were, yeah, it was too much work for that. It gets jumpy. The, yeah, the publishers get all jumpy. The publicists just kind of, the photo ops are really, really strange. Um, this is, we should say, the two-year anniversary of our show. Yeah. Hold up the sign, Jack. Right? So this was the perfect way to mark that milestone. We really appreciate you guys coming out and helping us to celebrate um, two years of doing I can't believe we've been doing this for two years. No, I, I can. Nobody who knows us thought we'd be able to you know, That's still be true. speaking at this point after two years. Well, people years, thought we were nuts for doing a live show. I mean, a lot of people are doing podcasts, and it's kind of easy to do a podcast. Well, it's not easy to always come up with the oh content. Oh, my God. It is so not easy. That's a word from our alien sponsor hacking into our system. Aren't live shows the greatest? And as you know, that was wow. I don't even know what that was. We probably picked up somebody's baby monitor or something. That happened to me once. The baby monitor in the building started picking. One of the other apartments in my building started picking up my cordless telephone calls, and I was like, "God, what did they hear?" Well, that became one very sophisticated gay baby. Is what happened. Quite. Yeah, that baby. That baby grew up to, yeah, quite a career. When we did our first live show, I want to say almost two years ago now, um, we, we had our studio ready because we have a studio <laughs> in West Hollywood, and everything seemed good, and we were in places, and we had our microphones on, and we were videoing, and then the last words we heard before we went live from our sound guy was, oh, shit. And then the show started. And then the show started. So we didn't know if we were talking to air or not. Um, but we interact with our listeners uh, via Facebook, and we have a Facebook page, and instead of taking calls, because we had all had that experience of being on the live radio show where nobody's moderating the calls, you know, and like, one Which... question will be interesting, and then you get a guy who's like, who wants to talk about vaginas? <laughs> and everyone's like, what do we do? And I'm like, you hang up the phone, that's what you do. Right? I'm not talking about that. Yeah. What, what would I possibly say? <laughs> I have no opinions in this area. You hear they're great. You hear well, they're I, great. I, I saw Georgia O'Keeffe showing once. Yeah. That's as close as I've ever gotten. <laughs> you have two more minutes to talk about vaginas. I oh don't know. Oh, my God. Can you fill two minutes with vaginas? I really don't think I can. I don't. That's, I, the Georgia O'Keeffe thing is really kind of all I got. Yeah. Anyway, but doing a live show is fun. It's my fun. favorite, my favorite was we also have in the studio we have a, a 
a, a computer that we share with the booth. And so Christopher oh and Brandon both work the same mouse. They're two different screens, but they're both connected to the same. And so Christopher was sort of shopping around, I don't know, updating his Facebook page or something on his monitor. What? And Brandon was, and so we're getting ready, the show is starting, and, and suddenly we hear through our, our, our headsets, Brandon goes, let go of the mouse, let go of the mouse, I'm trying to start the show. <laughs> I wish we could start every show with that. Let go of the mouse. Yeah. I'm trying to start the show. Yeah. Right, because Christopher was holding him up. I take exception to this. He was updating his Facebook page. One minute. Well, we have I don't know what you minute. were doing with the mouse. Uh, I was, I was do facilitating our very complex live broadcast is what I was doing. So have you had a good time on book tour, Christopher? I have had a good time on book tour. It's, it's a strange time to be publishing a book. It's been a strange time to publish a book now for about 10 years, I feel like. Authors keep saying that. Um, but it's been fascinating, and seeing the reception to Prince Lestat has been really amazing. Amazing. Yeah, it really has. To, going to New Orleans with the two of you was yeah. kind of unbelievable. People are dressing up again. I've been, I, Mom and I went on tour last year for, for The Wolves Have Been Winter and my novel The Heavens Rise, and nobody came in costume. But the co And tonight, many of you are in beautiful costumes. But in New York, we saw costumes again. I'm Christopher Rice. And I'm Eric Shaw Quinn. And Eric and I aren't just podcasters. And bitches. That's right. We're also authors. And you can buy all of our books at www.thedinnerpartyshow.com or tdps.tv and wherever ebooks are sold. At thedinnerpartyshow.com or tdps.tv, you can check out my Right Murder mystery series. Or sample my Burning Girl thrillers. The best part is, the more you buy our books, the less likely we'll end up filling the spot with an annoying ad for a napkin that counts your calories. The TDPS Network, alienating potential advertisers one promo at a time. <laughs> to the dinner party show where we all yell at each other backstage. I'm Christopher Rice. I'm Eric Shaw Quinn. And now it's the moment that we've all been waiting for. What's right? that? Which one? Which one? Which moment? Are we going to advertise another one of our books? No, we were all hoping that you would do a, a dramatic reading from one of Anne's, one of your mother's erotic I'd Stop novels. talking about her porn. I'm not doing me. it. This is what I'm going to say every time you try and put me on the spot. Okay, like that. we did we did a sketch where he dared me to read as much of my mother's S and M erotica as I could, and I made it through about four paragraphs. Pubis. You, yeah, pubis. You made it to the word. Pubis. I love erotica, but when it's your mom, Thumb it's a on different the thing. Oh. And right now, it's my mom, Ann Rice. Welcome to the dinner party show. Stand up. Woo! There she is. And she brought her purse, ladies and gentlemen. Come, come. Hi, Mom. Have a seat. Do you want me to take your purse? Welcome. Well, uh, just, I think it's on. It's think, on? Yeah, it's on. Welcome it's on. to the dinner party show, Ann Rice. Well, thank you very much, Chris Rice and Eric Shaw Quinn. It's so great so to have you. I'm so delighted to see you. Right? So where were you before? I was in Chicago this morning. Okay. And where was I before that? My gosh, I don't know. New York. I was in New York. And where was I before that? Um, gosh. It's a blank, but I was somewhere. <laughs> I've been all over, New Orleans, 
Uh, my gosh, I'm blanking out. How's Hartford, the tour Connecticut, going? Hartford, Connecticut. Oh, went from Mark Twain. Uh, the Mark Twain House. Yes, been lots We of went to the places. Mark Twain House. They invited. Uh, has anyone here been to the Mark Twain House in Hartford, Connecticut? One hand. Very literate. Thank you, sir. Two hands. Absolutely. I didn't know Mark Twain lived in Hartford, Connecticut, but apparently that was what the city he called home for most of his life because it used to be the capital of the publishing industry. Did you know that Hartford was Actually, the... Actually, I did not know that. Yeah. No, I thought he lived somewhere on the Mississippi River. Right? Didn't right? you figure like he was from Missouri? I guess he made enough money that he could leave. Yeah. <laughs> Which probably in those days was advisable. Yeah. If it was anything yeah. like in his books. Yeah, yeah, the trajectory of the Southern writer is often very similar, right? <laughs> Run yes. for your life. You leave and then you write a very vengeful novel about the town that you came from. <laughs> With thinly veiled characters, the, the look homeward angel syndrome. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. So, but we were on the Hartford stage there, which was fun because they, they were doing Hamlet, not while we were on stage. No. That was that very fun. so confusing. And, but there was a giant cross I guess, painted into the stage, because their take on Hamlet, they were explaining to us, was a Protestant versus Catholic reading right. of they, the they play. Had, we didn't ask questions, but you it did, sounded you very... You did. You were well, like, how very do you, intriguing. Yeah. How Hamlet get that out of or Hamlet? Mark Twain? No, but, of Hamlet. The oh, okay. Hartford Repertory Stage Theater um, is where we did the event after touring the Mark Twain House. The Mark Twain House wouldn't have been big enough to do the event in. And so they were saying the current production of Hamlet is this Catholic versus Protestant interpretation, and there was a silence, and Mom went... Very politely, how do you how do you get that out of Hamlet? <laughs> and they they sort of explained it in yeah. in some way, but I, yeah. I still didn't really get it by the end. But no. the point is, we were sitting on at, on the head of a big cross talking about porn, <laughs> which was really fun. Or oh, excuse me, erotica, erotica, not porn. Yeah, we were doing that. Yeah, yeah we absolutely. Were. It was very interesting. Well, I I think it's God's greatest invention. Porn. Well, sex in oh, general. Oh, okay. Yeah. Yes. Right? Where would we all be today without, you know... Porn? Oh, sex. Right. Well, that, where would you... If, would, where you would, would I, still be oh at home. God. I would still be at home. That's where I'd be. That's where I usually am with porn, is at home. Yeah. Um, hi, Mom! <laughs> right? Imagine what Thanksgiving is like. <laughs> so let's talk about New Orleans, though, because you, you made oh us... God. We brought Eric because Eric was throwing a yes, fit. we brought Eric. We, we had to bring wanted... Eric, and it was, yeah. the, it was the annual gathering of the Coven, which is the annual gathering of the Vampire Lestat fan club. But, right. but, but tell me this, because when they started, to, they started the fan club years ago, yes. you said you cannot call it the Anne Rice fan club because that's too weird. Well, they came up and asked me, is it all right if we start a fan club? And this was really early. It was a signing for The Vampire Lestat, which was just the second book in the series. And, and I said, no, I, I really can't have a fan club. But I said, why don't you start it for Lestat? He would love it. You know, he would totally love it. Oh, and totally. they did. They made the Vamp Anne Rice's Vampire Lestat fan club. And they've been giving these balls, these great big Halloween balls, on the Friday closest to Halloween for 26 years. And people come from all over the world for these balls, and they spend an enormous amount of time on their costumes. And it's really just a great spectacle. It, it's a lot of fun, and this year's was particularly fun, I think. Well, it was fun for me because of the new book. Unbelievable. But, but also, they had these Mardi Gras Indians, and I, I don't know how many of you know who the Mardi Gras Indians are, but it's an old tradition in the black neighborhoods of New Orleans on Mardi Gras Day for black men to come out as Indians in elaborate feathered costumes based on Native American costumes that these men work on all year to prepare. They're, and they're highly costumes. individual. 
and these men come out and they dance on Mardi Gras Day. And every Indian has his own territory in his own neighborhood. And he'll approach the border of another Indian's territory with great respect. And mm -hmm. they'll do some sort of greeting or dance like this. In the last few years, maybe the last 10 or more, Mardi Gras Indians have been agreeing to appear places, and they've been appearing in Mardi Gras parades, and they will come to balls and events, and they had two incredible Mardi Gras Indians at this ball, and I didn't know it, but one of them was a woman. So that was a real first, because normally, she was the queen. conventionally, said, yeah. they're men, but this was a woman, and women are now recognized by the Federation of Mardi Gras Indians, and she had a spectacular costume, and she greeted me with this incredible chant, you know, like, mm -hmm. I, you can do the chant, I can't. Anne told the story, <laughs> yeah, Anne right. is home, right. Anne, and we wanted her to follow you to the airport, Anne <laughs> has a flight, she's got to get to Chicago. <laughs> Yeah, but it was it was amazing. It was it was like um, a slam poetry performance. And the thousands of people who were there joined in the chant, and yes. so it turned into this sort of religious kind of right. moment. It I was, expected it was a giant ecstatic. spirit to come up out of the floor. It did. You didn't see. It was. Amazing. I just assumed it was one of the guests. But she also was. Um, this wonderful Mardi Gras Indian was doing rhymes with this, and they were co yeah. clearly coming from her brain right there. She was improving, and it was just spectacular. And her costume was pink; these incredible pink feathers everywhere, and it was just—I uh, I would laugh so hard. You know, I, they gave me a black um umbrella, and we were supposed to be second lining, you know, and which means dancing with the umbrella and and, and all this. <laughs> like and at I the funerals, the, the jazz the funerals you've like seen on the movies. She held the umbrella like she was walking primly through a rainstorm. And it's like, that's not a second line. You're supposed to be dancing. But it was very sweet. It was dainty. Very sweet. But, you know, second lining, um, it used to be a great honor in New Orleans when you were buried to have a second line at your funeral. Of course you and I have actually it. already had this in New Orleans. I have already Wait, had what? a funeral oh, right. and a second line uh, accompaniment. I was taking... So you got it out of the way early? No, years ago for a book signing, <laughs> I was put in a coffin, uh, my own coffin, as a matter of fact, that yeah. I had purchased, and I was put in the coffin, put into a glass hearse, and taken by uh, black horses pulling the hearse to the bookstore, which fortunately was a block away, and then, and all the way, these wonderful musicians from the French Quarter did this terrific uh, mournful jazz music, this second lining, and danced with umbrellas, mm -hmm. and so I've had my funeral. I don't have to worry. Oh, good. So yeah. I don't. It's good. We just a couple people hook. can kind of stand around and be like, "See you, girl. <laughs> you don't it was have real." To go down there and negotiate with anybody. It was done. We will have the funeral to end all funerals, provided okay, I'm still you. around. You never thank know. You. We'll get that. Yeah, we'll get that fan club together and that the pink Indian <laughs> yeah, and really right. go to town. Yeah. Absolutely. You'll get the umbrella this yeah. time, Christopher. One time, though, we you did a photo shoot, I think, for People Magazine in, in Las Vegas, and we met at a funeral home. And then the gig was you were going to get into the coffin, and it was going to be loaded into the back of a hearse and we were going to pull up at this shopping mall bookstore. <laughs> which, I, I thought, which I did. I got fun. in the coffin. Right, we did. Everybody loaded in. We got in. I was like, how far are we going? They're like, well, once we get on the freeway. <laughs> I was like, the freeway? 
We were in the car for like 45 minutes. Yeah. By the, at the yeah. store, it opened. Your hair well, was, was like, the, the act coffin. was over. You were like, get me out of the coffin. It's good. It's good. It, well, it, it was, I don't think a claustrophobic person could have taken it, you know, that bumpy ride in that coffin. But it was yeah. cool with me. So you're not a claustrophobic person. No, I was meditating. Someday you'll be in a coffin like this and you won't know it. And, you know, just thinking on life on death. <laughs> you could just make do anywhere. Did you fall but asleep? Then we get there. We get there and it sounds like the end of the world is happening, right? People are screaming. The coffin is being jostled. People are pushing, saying, let me through, let me through, and all this stuff. <laughs> and finally they put the coffin down and there's this exotic dancer. I guess that's what you call him. He's a gentleman. And he was painted in, in yeah. you know, flaming clothes of some sort. And he was going to kiss me and awaken me like Sleeping Beauty. And he couldn't get to the coffin. So finally he pushed the people back, got to the coffin, kissed me, and got up. But the crowd was so wild that they kept enveloping and, you know, surrounding him so that he couldn't do his thing. As right. He, you know, going yeah. into the store. We finally got into the store and it worked out fine. Yeah. You know, it was great. But you don't do that anymore. I mean, you do no. big events, but you don't do the... <laughs> The crowd coffin smash. I'm not opposed to it. I just didn't, I don't have a coffin anymore. You know, I sold my coffin. <laughs> Storage is at a premium in Palm Springs. <laughs> I'm sure you could buy the coffin store in Palm Springs. No, listen, people, people are sensitive about this. You just try calling a mortuary and asking to buy a coffin if you're not dead. Just try it. <laughs> So a lot you heard of that, Ben Con? I want all of you to go home and try calling a mortuary to order a coffin, and when they no. ask you if you're dead, say no. No, they, listen, they're, they're very disrespectful. They, they don't want to just sell any crazy vampire lady a coffin. Yeah. You know? They take it very seriously. Well, there was also the incident with that um, Chinese wedding dress that you tried to order. Oh, it was yeah. Made in, yeah. There was a sort of ritual Chinese wedding dress, and you wanted one in black. And they were like, I don't think so. We no, don't make wedding they, dresses in black. They felt black was very bad luck. Yeah. And it took a long time to get that gown, actually. It was a big ball gown type wedding dress. But they finally did deliver it in, in black silk. And I wore that to many different vampire balls for a while. And eventually, I think we raffled that off. And uh, a great vampire impersonator from Philadelphia bought it, I believe, and displays oh, it at right. his vampire yeah. ball on Halloween. Excellent. Yeah, and that was fun. But you're right, they didn't want to do it. So the world doesn't always cooperate with these little ventures. With darkness. <laughs> the world doesn't always cooperate with darkness. Well, uh, they have a different idea of darkness from what we have about darkness. You right. know, it, They don't see it as romantic and beautiful and as we do. You right. Know? You know, they don't know well, about... Well, I think that yeah. your take on what the vampire was, was I think that's what was so revolutionary about it, was that you didn't see it the same way as everyone no, has before. No, no, the interview no. with the vampire started an entire new look at what being a vampire even was, to see yeah. it from the vampire's point of view, as right. opposed to from the people running from the vampire's point of view, which is sort of repetitive. Mm -hmm. Right. <laughs> I remember, I remember halfway through the book, I went to the library just to see if anybody else had done this. And it was very easy then to do vampire research. This was 1973, and there just wasn't much on vampires. Well, you hadn't and I discovered that nobody else had, you know, checked it out pretty quick, and went home from the library. That was about it, you know. Uh, now, uh, looking back on that, it doesn't seem so revolutionary, but it was very unusual at the time. But you know there was something in the air in America at that time. People wanted the backstory of the villain. It wasn't just, just what I was doing. But, the Godfather yeah. was part of that too. Nobody had ever done the mafia from the interior of the mafia, sympathetic to the mafia. Right. Until Mario Puzo did that, and Don Corleone was kind of, that was a revolutionary thing. So that movie just 
way transcended any sort of crime movie that hmm. the studios had ever made before. It really wasn't a crime movie. It was a work of art. And uh, it was even the, the Superman movie that Richard Dick Donner did uh, shortly after that was revolutionary. You know, he took Superman totally seriously and did it with high production values. And the movie really was from his point of view. So that was in the air. You also talk about the time around then, I think it was at the American Booksellers Association where they screened Star Wars. Yeah. Right? You went yeah. to an advanced screening of Star Wars before anybody knew it was going to be Star Wars. They talk about Lucas screening Star Wars for his good friends, Marty Scorsese and Steven Spielberg, and they left his ranch going, man, what has he done? I didn't get it. Like, <laughs> should we talk to him? You know? Like, it's the little Wait, thing. Wait, Ma Martin Scorsese yeah, said that? Yeah, his good friends. It's, it's in a book about that, that period yeah. of filmmaking. They okay. said that he screened it for his good filmmaker friends, and they walked away scratching their heads saying, yeah. I think George yeah. has lost it, man. Yeah. But, but yeah. you had a different experience when you saw Star Wars. Well, yeah, we were at the American Booksellers, 1977, and my publisher, Ballantyne, was also doing the Star Wars try-in. Uh, tie-in. And there was a guy walking around as Darth Vader, but we didn't know who he was. <laughs> and we were all invited, do you want to go? Yes, what if I want to go? Okay, let's go. So we all went to this big theater in the Palace of Fine Arts in San Francisco, and with one projector, I guess, they uh -huh. showed us the movie. And before it began, George Lucas got up there on the stage, and he said something I've never forgotten. He said, we made the movie we wanted to see and couldn't find. And I thought, wow, that's, that's just brilliant. You know, that's what we authors have to do, is write the book we want to read. And Absolutely. Can't find. But anyway, um, Star Wars began in all its glory. And I remember the music was blasting and blasting and blasting. And there was a, just a moment of silence, and somebody screamed, louder! And they just <laughs> the house. <laughs> you know, flattened in our seats. But anyway, we all loved it. We all loved it. We caught right away what it was. And, and, and we just were thrilled, but we had no idea that before the end of the week, people would be just going wild over Star Wars. And so it was fun to witness the birth of that, that particular, what would you call it, the triumph of the nerds? I mean, the, yeah. you know, it, was, it was a great moment. It was a historic moment for fantasy and sci-fi and speculative fiction. Well, it was about fiction. revisiting, I, for me, the, seeing, I went to a sneak preview of uh, Star Wars as well, and the thing that I was caught up in, and it sounds like very much this, it was like those Saturday afternoon matinees. It yes, it was. It was almost like freeing our inner child. Yeah. It was it was an opportunity as an yeah. result because people were answering back to the screen and carrying yes. on and yes. and cheering for, and hissing at the villain and it was it was it that was. kind of participation. Yeah. It seemed to almost invite that. Where yeah. was it with Jaws on the timeline of movies? Was it after Jaws? Yes. Or it was after Jaws. Yeah, it was That's several right, years because after I think Jaws. Lucas took out an ad in Variety um, uh, that showed R2-D2 with a shark on the end of a hook because it had the box office had outdone Josh, <laughs> uh, Jaws, excuse yeah. me, so he was ribbing Spielberg. In and the pages and of I guess you know that every studio in Hollywood turned down Star Wars at least twice. But isn't that usually how it goes? Yeah, yeah I mean, every sure. studio turned yeah. down something amazing 500 Oh, yeah, times. And, and when The Godfather was screened uh, at the beginning at Paramount, they walked out with their head shaking saying, oh, no, it's never going to work. The star disappears in the middle. He dies. Marlon Brando, this is not going right. to work. This is just, there's no story. There's no plot. And, you know, the rest Dallas is history. Dallas Club was turned down like 27 times or yeah. something. I, yeah. I think that it's hard to make people see. But I, I think that's part of what we face as artists is, is believing in ourselves when no one else does. What's amazing, Eric, vision. is that they believe in themselves when they make so many mistakes. <laughs> you know, it's, it's it, no, it really is. It's amazing. I mean, 
<laughs> you know, we believe in ourselves out of desperation because we have to. Right. This is who we are. But they don't learn from their mistakes and they don't learn from their successes. They keep believing basic predictions and cliches about what will work, what's needed right now. And, and the amazing amount of oomph they put into those convictions is really breathtaking. You it know, sometimes it really can is. be stupefying. I'm always amazed by how startled they are when women go to the movies and buy tickets. <laughs> and it's like, really, 51% of the population, this is, I you're know. not even factoring them in at all? Mm -hmm. Or, or the know. same, Tyler Perry has made his, has made a fortune by producing movies for a group of people that are being ignored by most of the rest of Hollywood production. Right, right. Yeah. Well, now that we just guaranteed we're not going to get any work in Hollywood. Right, um, that's it. We're going to have to leave town <laughs> after that. However, you do have some work in Hollywood. Um, aside from the fact that Prince Lestat debuted at number three on the New York Times bestseller list this week. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Universal Studios has optioned the rights to all of the Vampire Chronicles, every last book, every, yes. every, every vampire that you've ever written about. And, and Christopher is working on the script. Yes, yes, yes. Well, actually, Until she fires me. <laughs> no, I, but actually the backstairs, the backstairs story on this, or the backstage story is, we probably would not have this deal with Universal if it wasn't for Christopher writing the script. Absolutely. The, the, the producers had been in love with this project for a long time, and they really wanted to do it, but they couldn't get a studio to come to the table. And it really wasn't so much that they rejected the Vampire Chronicles. It was, it was ec economics, the times. They just didn't know whether it would work or not. And Christopher came in and wrote the script on spec, um, and it blew Universal away. Absolutely. And they came to the table and said, yeah, we want to do this. And then we began our really serious negotiations, and we're now just about finished with that. We're certainly complete enough that they made their announcement. And uh, we're going to start having our creative meetings within a couple of weeks where we talk to them about what I would, I want my chance to tell them what I think the readers really want with the Vampire Chronicles. And, and Christopher and I will be in that process together. And I can sleep at night knowing it's Christopher who's going to be writing that first script. But I can't sleep. <laughs> because it's me. No, um, but, but we, I asked you this a, a bunch this week when we were on the road. What's the movie you want? What do you want to see next? What do I want to see? I, I would like them to begin with The Vampire Lestat, the second book in the series. I would like them to do that pretty much the way it was written. I'm, I'm not real good for anything but the way it was written. Mm -hmm. I mean, I considered a lot of possibilities when I was writing it. Thank you. Right? Well, we all know they had great success with Harry Potter by making them older and setting it in an American high school, so why shouldn't they do that for all the big books that they option? Um, right, no. And okay. No, but Harry Potter is absolute proof that you should stick with, with what the author did. No question yeah. about that. And Lord of the Rings, the same thing. Game of Thrones, the same thing. You know, George Martin, apparently. My hat's off to George Martin for what he achieved. Tell by the just... George Martin story. Tell the George you, Martin story. I don't want to steal story. your story. Yeah, I think you read it in Entertainment Weekly. What did they have to do oh, to make Game of Thrones at HBO? I love that, yeah, he was really, he was really a hard-ass about allowing people to adapt the script. People approached him again and again about trying to do something with the property. I don't know about making it into movies, but certainly television. And David Benioff and his partner 
went to him and they had a series of meetings where he grilled them about the the work itself so that he was sure that they were familiar. And at the end, he, according to this story, I don't know if it's folklore or not, I wasn't actually there, but apparently he said, he asked them a particular question that is not actually covered. In any, he hasn't even written it yet. He asked, who is... John Snow's mother. Oh, that's, that's a good one. I want to he know that. He asked that question, and he hasn't said in his books yet. He asked them that question, and based on their answer to that question, he gave them the go-ahead to produce that amazing series. Yeah, that's series. great. That's right. great. But good for him for saying, you know, I want to know that you are familiar with the actual yeah. work. Because I've been to the movies again and again where I go... What is this based on? I what, know. What, what, how does this have anything to do with the book? Yeah, the Harry Potter is a great example. Yeah. I really yeah. thought, while they couldn't do everything, they did a great job of realizing yes. those books yes. as films. Yeah. And, and apparently and a few other people agreed. Right. A few, but a this few is a collaborative art form, and you never know quite what's going to happen, but we're going to try very hard to... And as all artists know, collaborative usually means you have to take the advice of people who have no fucking idea what they're talking about. Yes, sort of it can goes. mean That's that. That's my yeah. best story. It can yeah. mean that. We have a fishbowl full of questions from, from our VidCon attendees for Miss Anne Rice. It's also full of something else that just made a loud noise. I hope I'm not it's, about to be That's glass pranked. beads to glass make the lighting. Beads. I was more concerned about, how do you like this fishbowl? Pretty cool, huh? We spent thousands on this fishbowl, guys. Okay, now we get to play Guess the Handwriting. All right. Have you ever thought about writing a book specifically about the Talamasca and their agents? Well, I've actually tried to write a book about the Talamasca several times, and it just has not worked. But, of course, in Prince Lestat, there, uh, there are quite a few secrets revealed about the Talamasca. And in the next book, Blood Paradise, there will be a lot more about the Talamasca. You heard it here. The next book is called Blood Paradise. Right. Yeah. Thank you. Can you talk about what else is going to happen in the next book? What? Can you talk about what else is going to happen in the next book, or have you not written Well, the yet? next book is going to continue from Prince Lestat. It's going to be about pretty much the same subject matter. I mean, what is the prince facing, and how is he going to hold up under it, and what has he done to himself? I don't want to spoil the book for no. anybody who hasn't read it, but I want to continue so with good. all of the major threads and themes that are in the first book. It, it'll be like volume two of, of that. Um, and I can see at least another book after that. So I would think um, if this is the new Chronicles, it would, it, it, there will be at least three books. You know. Cool. Brianna Thomas would like to know which vampire do you relate to the most? Oh, I, it's definitely Lestat, <laughs> my hero. I, of all the characters I've ever written about, Lestat. Let's talk about Gabrielle, because Gabrielle's coming up a lot on this tour, because I think you said on our show last week, which we recorded with you in New Orleans, that you're not a big fan of Lestat's mother, Gabrielle. No, I don't like her. And there was like a her. Facebook response to that. Well, what do you mean? Gabrielle's a feminist icon. Well, I, I think Gabrielle is a cold, unloving woman, you know, uh, she took the dark gift and, and, and immediately abandoned her son, pretty much, and went off into the wilds. She had a different vision of what she wanted to do. She is, I, I think, a very powerful character, very strong. 
she saw immediately. I mean, I hate to talk about characters as if I didn't write the character, but I mean, mm -hmm. it, in a way, what happened in the book sort of felt inevitable to me. She realized immediately there was no point to being a woman anymore, you know, in, in 18th century female clothes, that the simplest thing to do was to cut her hair and dress as a man right away, that that, was, that gave her the maximum freedom that she wanted, and but after that, she moved away from Lestat. And, you know, these characters, they're developed by me in a spontaneous way and an intuitive way, and I, I really do let them come alive, and she came to be somebody I didn't particularly like. And they really do set their own course. Once you get them going, once you have the logical givens of a character, they take off. They, they tell do. you what's going they, to happen they next. They do, and you can't force them to do things. At least, I mean, if, it all goes bad if you try to do yeah. that. And, and also, I think very much part of who Lestat is, is that young man who is abandoned by just about everybody. Um, maybe because of how strong he is and how needy and how strong at the same time, I'm not sure. But the abandonment when she left him felt very good to me. And of course his despair was terrible. I mean, he virtually buried himself alive until Marius found him and, and rescued him from a kind of indefinite coma in the earth. And I, I've never felt um, confident to write from Gabrielle's point of view or to do a book all about the inner workings of her mind because I, I would never be Gabrielle. I would love to be Lestat. I would totally love to be. You know, that's who I am in my imagination. Yeah, who wouldn't? Yes, absolutely. Yeah, sure. You know, just just moving through the world as the brat prince with total self confidence. You know, <laughs> but Gabrielle, somebody who really wants to go off and walk through the uh, the frozen forests of the far north. That's just just not something I want to do at all. You know, <clears throat> so that's why I've never written about her. Will there ever be another book about the Mayfair witches in the house on First Street? I, I wouldn't say no. Uh, I don't know right now. It's I, I, my mind's very much on Lestat and the vampires, but I wouldn't say no to that. There, there would be a small problem for me in that I no longer live in that house, but that doesn't mean I can't write about it. You yeah, know, right. and, you said and that I know last every week, inch like, of it. It's but, fiction. Mom. But I, I feel strange that I don't live in it. I mean, I guess I. It would be an interesting exercise to go back and write about it again, right. as if I was still in it. Um, you could renovate it. I guess there's no, nobody's stopping me from no, doing that. No, there's nobody stopping uh, Although I, I will say a famous actor allegedly rented it after we moved out. And I was speaking to the woman across the street during a visit. And she said he had like the most profane pornographic art. And the movers got stuck dragging this giant painting of a nun having sex. <laughs> and they like couldn't get it out the front door. So this, our old house had this nun <laughs> sex scene trapped on the front porch while everyone there was like, what is going on? <laughs> Okay. It was Nicholas Cage. Can we, Nicholas Cage. <laughs> Nicholas Cage, yeah. Okay. Eric Shaw Quinn, would you like to ask a question? This is your All show, right. too. Well, I don't have my glasses on, oh. so I may have to just pull the <laughs> I put question. Make up a question, Let's then. Let's see. This is on a yellow card, and it says... Are there any plans to write more books focused <laughs> around other vampires, such as Lewis? Ooh. Or Louis. Mar Louis or Marius. And this is from Karen. Does that say Karen? That says Karen. And don't if worry, I won't make you ask another question yeah. without your glasses. Sorry, that was him. Yeah. <laughs> well, right now, I think I want to focus on um, a number of vampires in each book. Um, kind of large cast books for a while. And certainly, some characters are going to come to dominate. And I think Louis definitely going to be one of them in the second book. <clears throat> Thank you. 
another question. We picked right. a, let's do a green From the cited. card. Let's do a green card. Somebody wished to remain anonymous. No, David Wright does not wish to remain anonymous. How many vampire books are coming? I, I would say at least another two. You at know. least another two. Yeah. Okay. And then at the end of those two, what's going to happen? Well, I, I don't know. You know, who knows? I mean, I... What about Loch Ness? <laughs> what about Loch Ness? I think Ness? you could do a great Loch Ness novel. <laughs> <laughs> He's not a monster. He's a misunderstood alien. I think Certainly we... Let's do is. it together. Let's collaborate. Or you could do, like, the porn version. Okay. <laughs> okay. It's all about every the, every show we talk about Bigfoot porn. It's all about the tentacles. Oh, well, okay, went, I like talking about Bigfoot porn. Who went and found? I was going to say who went and found. Does the everybody Bigfoot know porn? that Bigfoot porn is a thing? Me. Clap if you Bigfoot know that Bigfoot porn. porn is a thing. Okay, a lot of people know. There's a series of books called, and I'm just going to say the name because we're an internet radio show. Come for Bigfoot, and they are making its author thirty thousand dollars a month in royalties. Okay. And I'm not kidding. It's not like a French metaphor for Bigfoot sex. It's Bigfoot sex. (laughs) They go out in the woods. They have sex with Bigfoot. Has a crazy grandmother who's human, which is never explained. And you know, anyway. So, Miss Rice, how are you doing this evening? (laughs) Would you like to write some Bigfoot porn with your son? (laughs) Or Loch Ness monster porn? (laughs) Let's take another question from the fishbowl, shall we? Okay. This question is from Jack Plummer. Is Beckett with you tonight? Oh, yeah. Can we hear his voice? Well, actually, uh, let's see. Beckett? I haven't seen Beckett all. I think Beckett was abducted. No, He's no. He's hiding in the hall. Beckett is definitely here. He is actually upstairs packing our stuff up and loading it in the car. So you probably be able to talk but to him I, when we're I want you to know after. that Beckett has outdone himself today, you know, as he has been my assistant for nine years, and he's... Um, a research assistant, a tech assistant, a driver, a traveling companion, a genius of multiple talents. And today, when I was stumbling around the room up there with this scarf, trying to figure out how to use an iron, he said, let me iron it. And he took the scarf and ironed Wait, it. Wait, he told me last year he didn't know how to iron and he wouldn't iron my shirt. Oh. <laughs> Did you ask him? You I'm sure it was personal. White boy problem. Um, <laughs> damn it. I okay. think ironing a scarf Maybe and a he shirt learned. Are two I, different the worst things. part about going on a book tour is ironing. It really is. It's literally well, the worst I part. I haven't ironed in years. So I used iron. to iron, you know, like every other person. I can't show up looking like some ruffian. I have to be ironed. If I'm going to be sitting next like to her, ruffian. she goes to her book signings in pearl encrusted chokers. I'm not going to show up in pajamas. Like, do I? I dared her to come wearing one of her gowns. One of her. Absolutely. They won't fit in the suitcase, though. Okay, we have another question from the. Uh, uh, Fishbowl, and I just want to say, whoever asked this question, it's Tale of the Body Thief, not Tale of the Body Snatcher. Confusing genre, uh, or franchises there. In Tale of the Body Thief, whatever happened to the dog? In the next book, there is no mention of him. Well, the, the dog, actually, I think he is mentioned uh, a couple of books later. Uh, Lestat does mention going and checking on Mojo and taking him for a walk. But the dog eventually died, is what happened to the dog. It was my dog, Mojo, and he was a great giant German shepherd. And I put him in the book just because he was there, and I loved him. And as I explained in the book, Lestat says there's no reason for this dog to be in the book, (laughs) except he's here, and then, you know, he becomes his dog. But Mojo was a giant giant breed that really lives for only about eight or nine years. Mm -hmm. And uh, he was a wonderful dog right up to the very last day. And... 
And we, he, he used to be just the friendliest, sweetest dog imaginable. And people would reach through our gate in New Orleans and steal his dog tags over and over again. We were always making new mojo <laughs> tags. We, we also had a gentleman in our employee who was selling locks of his hair through the gate. Yes, yes. We, we had a, some very yeah. in, 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 ingenious employees who did incredible things. So he was things. like shaving <laughs> the dog? Babe. What? He what? So he was like shaving the dog? No, and no, dog no. Had a no. huge coat. Just, the dog cut, had, had just a cutting huge, a lock off. The dog never missed it. It was fine. Yeah. Yeah, I don't think the dog would mind even if you shaved it. I don't think dogs no, no, react no. to that Mojo sort of thing. was a long-haired German shepherd. I he, see. he was a quite a Well, he was impressive. a Shiloh shepherd, which yeah. is a breed. Yeah. Of, it's a very friendly, sensitive breed of German shepherd. Yeah, yeah. Know just, just a great dog. It was so sad yeah. when he died. We buried him in the yard. Yeah, he did live a full life, though. He, he lived out his life in expectancy, and then his heart gave out, I think. And yeah. we lost him, and we buried him on the property. And uh, it was pouring down rain, I remember. It was very sad the day we buried him. We were all brokenhearted. Yeah. But that's what became of Mojo. <clears throat> well, he was famous, at least. Yeah. Yeah, he lived, he lived short and high. And listen, um, fame for our dogs was not limited to Mojo. Oh, no? You have what to remember they? that our golden retriever, Sonny, starred in um, a oh, movie with right. Kevin Costner yeah, and Sissy Spacek. Played a dog named Touchdown, and what was the name of that movie? JFK. JFK. Oliver Stone's movie JFK. Yeah. This was the it was the first day of summer, and this movie shoot had taken over our, our neighborhood in the Garden District, and the dog trainer was going to get fired because the dog that she had hired flipped out every time it rained. It's summer in New Orleans. It was raining every ten minutes. Right. She had trained our dog. She walks down the street. Meanwhile, in our house. The first day of summer for best-selling novelist Anne Rice has arrived with her son saying, make me pancakes. I want pancakes. Make me pancakes. So she's looking forward to a summer of pancake orders when the doorbell rings. And you said to the dog trainer, she says, can I use your dog? And she said, only if you take my son with you. <laughs> so I spent the whole summer on the set of JFK... How old with were you? the dog, I'm 12, 13. Yeah, yeah, and all your friends were down there watching. Oh, it was the <laughs> and event. And you got to walk in. Got to and, walk with the yeah. dog, and then, you know. And I had met the director, Oliver Stone, once in Hollywood when we were talking about the Vampire Chronicles, actually, at Julia Phillips' house. She was the producer then, and she wanted Oliver Stone to direct them. So he, so they went in to Oliver and said, can Anne Rice's son come in? Come in, and Oliver said, oh, yeah, I know Anne. Sure, let him in. Yeah. So you spent the summer watching them shoot that movie so and Sonny was never the same after that I mean it every day him. fame ruined that had to dog. have his own trailer he no really it was heartbreaking yeah. I mean every day they took him down there they brushed him and, and 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 fed him ice cream with a spoon and Kevin Costner fed him ice cream with a spoon and well, 34 takes of that ice cream scene I'm surprised the dog didn't throw up everywhere so for months, if not years, after that movie had wrapped and left, Sonny went to the front gate, you know, with his Hollywood memories. Waiting for Hollywood, Waiting as for we Hollywood. all do at our uh, front gate. That, so that was our other Sipping on a soda at Schwab's. Yeah, it's better, better, yeah. Ray Yu would like to know, have you ever considered making comics or graphic novels of your existing stories? You have many comics well, and I've graphic licensed, novels. Well, I've licensed them, and, and uh, Innovation was the... Uh, was the company that did the, vamp the Vampire Lestat in 12 volumes, 12 issues anyway. And Ballantine Books later did a co-production or a co-publication with Innovation. And you can get that now, that hardcover of the Vampire Lestat. And The Witching Hour was done, The Mummy was done, uh, a short story I wrote called The... 
uh, Master of Rampling Gate was done. Quite a, quite a few of them were done. But all of these were sort of garage operations, these graphic novel companies. And they went out of business, I believe. And, really? and these comics went out of print. So now they circulate mainly at Comic-Con where, you know, where you find the used comics and you go to buy the used stuff. At, at the present time, um, Hachette is doing the Wolf Gift, which um, I'm very much looking forward to. And they did... Um, a version of Interview with the Vampire where they just took Claudia's story and broke it out and illustrated that. But I, I don't know if the publication has been that successful because when they renamed it Claudia's story, <clears throat> unfortunately people thought they were going to get a new narrative and they really didn't. They just got an adaptation from Interview. Mm. But that drawing is beautiful. It's just the gorgeous and I've beautiful. signed quite a few copies. Yeah. And I'm enthusiastic about the wolf gift. I think it's going to be impressive what they've done. Yeah, it seems ripe for them. I'm totally open to it all. I, 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 I wish I could get Knopf to do a whole graphic novel of the Vampire Chronicles from start to finish. That would beautiful. Be, that would yeah, be beautiful. Yeah, I'm trying to get my editor, Vicki, interested in that, you know, supervising that herself and getting that done. Neil Wade would like to know this. When you've been told your writing is bad, what are the ways you continue nurturing the passion? Oh, I just ignore it. I mean... <laughs> no, but, but seriously. I mean... Good for you. You have, you have to do that. You have to believe in yourself and... Never, I, I don't think you should ever put your work, I don't care what stage of the game you're at, never put your work in somebody else's hands and take seriously what they say to you if they tell you you have no talent and you should quit. Just thank them very much for their opinion and go right on writing. And, and I mean, ignore it. I mean, one of, our, one of our first obligations is to survive as writers. And that means not taking no for an answer from anyone and not even from yourself. You know, just just keep going, and I, I I can't I I don't know what to say about that except to emphasize how wrong it would be to believe what other people say. If if you love what you're doing, if it feels intense to you, you go right on doing it, and and just uh, look for the people who you can't respond to it. You not do it if it's what you're supposed to do. You really you can't not do it. Even if you're working other jobs, you will find a way to cram it in. You will find well, a, I, you'll do it compulsively. It's like I a, believe it's in, a disease. In, in in willpower. I I believe yeah. that you just you you do it because you want to do it. And, right. And you yeah. and you keep doing it. And I have been told plenty of times I have you can find somebody tonight on Amazon telling me I have no talent. Just <laughs> go to the side. Really. There are people now. I mean on every book I've written I think, has sooner or later been called by somebody the worst book ever published. You know, I mean, this is quite common in my experience. I, always I don't pay any attention. Van Gogh is always my example. Where would the world be today if he had believed, you know, the, he never sold a painting. I, there's that episode that of we saw together Who. of Doctor Who. Uh, this I don't is the know crowd to talk it. about a Doctor Who episode. Just here. that when, when he brings him forward in time so that he can see that Everybody else actually finally got it, but yeah, like, but it's great. I, I always think of him like as an artist who stuck by his vision and continued right on painting yeah. despite the fact yeah. that no one else ever got it during even his own lifetime. Because yeah. you never know as an artist. And you what never about do. Keats? What about Keats dying of TV in Rome at the foot of the Spanish Steps, not knowing, not having any idea that right? he would be seen as a great poet? He, he, and, he, and he wrote his own epitaph: "Here lies one whose name was written water." because he thought he hadn't accomplished anything. Mm. And, and what about uh, Emily Bronte dying, you know, the author of Wuthering Heights? No clue that the world would value that novel, you know? As long as, yeah, it's become a classic. And, uh, Stephen King has said in an interview he believes he will be forgotten. 
<laughs> he does, really. He believes that his books will not endure, that he is of the moment now and that he is not a... Not I, actually, I don't agree with them. Yeah, but I, I, agree I think either, he'll be very, very well remembered. Yeah. Yeah. Much more importantly, party person Sumiko Salson, who's sitting in the front row, would like to I know this. I thought that was Sumiko. If you went to karaoke with them tonight, would you sing John Bon Jovi songs? <laughs> That's a good one. Like, if I became an astronaut tonight, what planet would I go to? Uh, <laughs> what you, yeah, I'd try to sing Bad Medicine. Yeah, I like that. <laughs> Her mother, Carolyn Salson, would like to know, when you write, do you need a special place to write, or can you just write anywhere? Well, I've never learned how to write in without being at my machine. That was true even when I was a typewriter writer. I had to have my electric typewriter there and be comfortable at my desk. It's the same now. I need my big um, Mac computer and my monitors and my Lexa, Lexapro keyboard and... I, 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 I don't Lexapro. think Lexapro makes keyboard. I think that's like a psychotic drug. Yeah, but Lexapro um, keyboard. Yeah, I, I prefer my iPaxel. I prefer the Paxel keyboard. Yeah. <laughs> Sorry, I beat yeah, you to that, that joke. Wrong. I knew you'd get there if I gave you another thirty seconds. I was trying. I was trying. <laughs> no, it you wouldn't shut up. It's Logitech. It's Logitech. I forgot. It's Logitech. Logitech. Just like Lexapro. I like Lexapro. Yeah. I'm going looking for a Lexapro. It's an anti-seizure keyboard. It right? keeps you. Yeah. <laughs> for those in whom the passion becomes too great. <laughs> Let's see. I think we've got a little time That's left for another favorite. question from the fishbowl. Let's see. This is from Alex Roman. What do you think of the vampire TV genre today? Well, I really enjoyed True Blood a lot. I you really felt you did. were misquoted recently, and we've got a minute left, but the Time Magazine piece, you felt misquoted you about True Blood and Charlene, that you, it made they, it sound like you didn't like it. They cut out most of what I said. I really yeah. love Char Charlene's writing, and I think she's wonderfully clever and a very good writer, and I love Suki Stackhouse, and I love True Blood. And I, I really loved especially the first three or four years, and then I went back to my own vampires, and I didn't watch so much. I went back to being protective of my own mind, and... I, I didn't really get the last two seasons totally, but but I love the series. But I, I think it's it important great. to note too that if you haven't read Princess Dot yet and you're planning to, it you didn't bring them back in an American diner. You brought them back as they would be your as your vampires would be in Absolutely. this modern era. Absolutely. I yeah. mean, obviously, each vampire author coming along is going to do these immortals uh, in a very personal way. Mm -hmm. And the genius of Charlene was that she brought her vampires to Bonton, Louisiana, and had them hang out at Sam Merlot's Right, I always wanted the, the episode where you were hanging out in Merlot's. Oh, I, I would love that, talked yeah. about it. Yeah, yeah. I thought that yeah. there was the a Facebook group that happen. was trying to get that going. I know, I would have loved to have been on the set of True Blood any time. I would have fun. been glad to do it. Yeah. I thought it was great fun. I was, I was Team Bill all the way, you know. Yeah. Okay. Well... I think that's about all the time we have tonight. We could have sat here for another hour with this amazing audience here well, at BenCon. Well, yes. Thank you so much, guys. Thank Great you. Great job. You were amazing. Okay. We're going to have you at all of our live shows. We want to thank everyone who apparently heard part of us at home. I'm not sure the entire <laughs> show went out over the airways, but we are going to begin repeating it on our, on our stream very soon at thedinnerpartyshow.com, and the entire show was recorded, so it will also be available as a podcast and in constant replay since it's our website, and we don't have to play anything we don't want right? to, so we just it's play our show. It's all about us. It really is all about us this well, one thank time. Thank you, Jim. Anne Rice, Mom... Your yes, Highness, sorry. thank you for joining us. We know how tired you are. Thank you, thank you. Thank you, everybody. Thank you. Enjoyed it very much. 
So as we close out our two-year anniversary show and our first ever live on location episode of The Dinner Party Show, I'm Christopher Rice. And I'm Eric Shaw Quinn. And you've been listening to The Dinner Party Show. Thanks. I've been to a marvelous party. We want to thank you all for listening to these special encore presentations of some of our most cherished memories of my mother. This would normally be the time when Christopher and I packed up for the deserts of Southern California and several weeks of binge-watching television in Anne's media room. But now that my dear friend is gone, this seemed like the perfect time to ease the pain of her loss by celebrating her memory. So thank you for going along on this journey with us. In our next episode, we'll return to our usual format with a conversation about what it means to build new traditions in the face of loss and change. In the meantime, Happy New Year. Until then and forever after, I'm Christopher Rice. And I'm Eric Shaw Quinn. And you've been listening to TDPS Presents Christopher. And Eric. Happy New Year. This is TDPS.